This is O Ship, the show where experts and leaders look back at their biggest moments of failure just so you can avoid making them. And there is no one better to squeeze the naked truth out of our charismatic guests than your host, Chameleon Collective Founding Partner, Freddie Laker. Hi, everyone, and welcome to O Ship. This week, I've got a new friend on called Adam Rich. Now, if you haven't heard of Adam before, Adam was the founder, uh, is the founder of Thrillist. Uh, so if you're, if you're not familiar with Thrillist, it's a fantastic lifestyle uh, media site that's been out for a really long time. It started as a, a notable newsletter and has continued to expand onto this day. Uh, but it's been a great place if you're ever trying to figure out you know, what's cool uh, in this world. Thrillist has always been a great place to start. Adam uh, is also someone known for having a great mind for creating content. No surprise with his background in Thrillist. But what you might not know about Adam is he also happens to have a great mind for building interesting and new businesses. Uh, you know, even from the earliest days of Thrillist, he was thinking about different ways to organize his team and whether you know, working remotely and other, other different aspects that we've been thinking about today, he's been thinking about since the early 2000s. So he and I decided that we wanted to chat about the future of work, but more probably more specifically asking it today, is work broken? And so with that, I welcome you to another week of OSHIP. We're going to have a great and lively debate. Adam, welcome to Ship. How are you? Hey, Freddie. How you doing? Doing good, man. Doing good. I like I like that you've got like a whole like you've blended into the nautical colors in the background there. This is very on brand. I appreciate you doing that for me. Yeah, yeah. The painters just left, so uh, <laughs> very, very, it's working. Real, real commitment to the show. This is my other guests have never never backed me up like that. This, this is the kind of guy you are. I like that. Well, you know, <laughs> longtime fan, first time uh, caller. <laughs> Perfect. So, you know, Adam, I, I give a little bit of a setup for, for some of your background, but love for people to get to know you a bit better. Yeah. You, you started uh, Thrillist when you were pretty young. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about you know, starting the business and what it was like for you guys in the beginning? Yeah. I mean, look, uh, the best time to start a business is when you're too young and stupid to know what the odds are on it. So that was me and uh, my co-founder. And yeah, I mean, we started working on Thrillist when I was 24, a couple of years out of school and, you know, got it going uh, when, you know, I, what I, I did, I was smart enough to know that it was a time when I uniquely had very little to lose. And when it was time to consider quitting my day job, kind of took stock of things and was like, I don't have a wife. I don't have kids who need their teeth fixed. If this fails, I'll feel like a loser, but, you know, I'll move into my parents' basement and, you know, then put it back together again. So that was kind of the calculus at the time. So yeah, I mean, that was back in 2004. And, and so give, give me a sense of uh, you know, what, what the you know, company was like in terms of, you know, number of people and, and you know, the kind, the kind of like, you know, what was the mix of like all the, the, the body yeah. of the business, you know, and obviously that involved quite a lot. I mean, uh, you, you had been doing it for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, initially it was, uh, myself and uh, my college friend with whom I started the thing um, and a, fr a freelance writer. 
And so, you know, I, I think part of why I'm so fascinated by the fact that everybody's coming around to this, like, is work broken? And like, what's going on with the office is that, you know, from jump, we didn't have a typical kind of employee kind of workplace kind of thing. Cause you know, our first employee was a freelancer. And then really shortly afterwards, you know, Thrillist's initial product was a, or, and I think it maybe it still, it still can be considered to be a core offering of what we do is local newsletters that tell you about the best stuff in your city. And that required having people on the ground in every market that we served. Mm, that makes sense. And then, and then at some point you guys did pull together, I think in office, I assume it was what, in, in New York? Yeah, um, yeah, and uh, so, I mean, do you do you miss that part of the the business as well? Yeah, of course. I mean, it was a very lively place. I think that you know it was an open floor plan, which I you know in my kind of experience, there's like a sweet spot as far as the size of a thing like that. You know, mm-hmm. I think you know I asked myself, you know, is work broken pretty regularly uh, toward the end of my tenure at Thrillist when I would walk into the office and it would be you know 150 people in an open pit with noise canceling headphones, slacking each other from six feet away, you know, like that, just yeah. that, like, I don't feel like I need to spend, you know, the square foot uh, rent in Soho to have a bunch of people like doing their best to ignore the fact that they're in the same space as people. Yeah. Uh, a, a, a fair, a fair point. <laughs> uh, and then, and then just, just to get a sense of it, uh, you know, was, so you had, was that like kind of peak size, 150 people in Soho, uh, I can't even. I can't even try to imagine. I don't even want to know what the rent for that would be. I'm sure it'd make me weep uh, <laughs> a little. Bit. Oh no! I mean, every time we looked at that, we thought work is broken. Yeah. No, I mean that was the size of the like editorial and audience team, which I, which I ended up directly overseeing. Um, and you know, but it was Soho, so the buildings like no nobody had a square like a like a floor plan that could accommodate the you know 600 700 people that we were at that point. And so, you know, it was like we had something like eight different leases in the same office. And so it, you you had the one on this floor and one over here, and then you walk through another to get to that one. And it was like <laughs> it's like working remotely in the same building. <laughs> yeah, it was very Lego. <laughs> and so, you know, you you touched on uh, this concept of, of work being broken, and 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 uh, you you mentioned asking yourself that several times. But when you when you really think about it, what you know, what's what's your answer? What is your feeling on that? And I guess why. Well, you know, I think that I think it's worth like looking at how this question is on everybody's mind in context, because I think that you can look at the the things that feel like they're going wrong. And it's a little bit of like a boiling the frog thing where it was like, you know, meetings were kind of bloating and people were getting too many emails and Slack was kind of taking over your workplace experience. And so you had a lot of these encroaching factors and then the pandemic hit. And then there was no office and then there was no kind of bon homie of being in the same space or having the break room or having a beer uh, when everybody closes their laptop lid. And it sort of interrupted that boiling the frog thing. And everybody kind of took a minute and looked around and was like, wait a minute, this sucks. Mm. What's your, uh, I guess, offices? I think you would argue, I guess, are you arguing for them or are you arguing against them? I, look, I think that an, the office is a really formidable workplace tool. Uh, But in the way that, you know, you wouldn't go around your house trying to fix everything with a hammer, everything shouldn't be put through the office. Mm. Uh, One of the things that's happened to us recently that makes me think a lot about this, obviously, uh, anyone who's watched those ship for a while 
knows that uh, Chameleon Collective has never had an office and never will have an office if we have anything to do with it. But, you know, it's not something that you, it's hard to take a company that I think has had offices historically and then to say we're never going to have them again. One of the reasons it works for Chameleon Collective is because we've recruited from day one for people that want to work that way. And I think so I think in our case, it works for us, but I, I agree it's not for everyone. Yeah, and I think what it can also be tough if you have some people in an office and some people not. Like that that's yeah. a very imbalanced. Yeah, yeah, totally. And but we're we're uh the thing that made me think about this more lately and very uh, timely for the subject we've got today is in the last couple of days some good news so I've had a good week. Uh I found out that uh Camillion Collective got ranked as uh I think it was by Forbes I want to make sure I use the exact wording. I think it was uh America's uh top start uh Americans America's top startup employers. And so we showed up on this list. Uh for me that was a really big deal. It put me in a really really great mood and and you know they had all their algorithms of how they selected all this stuff, but it made me start reflecting on the fact that uh sometimes uh, we've gone out there and we wanted to get, you know, ranked on, on like best places to work. And because we didn't have an office, we couldn't even like, you know, we couldn't even qualify basically. They wouldn't, we weren't even up for consideration. And so I thought, I kind of know. I just think that's kind of weird. I, yeah. I, I don't know if, if that's just like a people are going to start going back and updating that stuff now, but I don't know if that does qualify it. But I can think about like lots of periods and, you know, maybe if they had a, if it's not just about like best places to work, that's one thing. If you want to have, you know, America's coolest offices, cool, great, I get it. But but I don't think that should be a determinant on, on, on best places to work. You know, I think some people do that well and some people just don't do that well. So what do you think makes, you know, arguing for offices for a second, what, and you were talking about the, you know, the, the folks with all the headphones on and just kind of slap <laughs> each other. And, and I, I had a startup once called Guide where, we, yeah, we were super guilty of that. It was like around the time everyone started using Slack, we'd slack each other around a table. It was ridiculous. Sure. Uh, yeah, we weren't even at separate desks. It was just, it was just one giant table. We're still slacking each other. So what, what makes a good, a good office environment better? I, I think it's really easy to go and be like, oh, like the best office environment, you've got like ping pong tables and like cool art and stuff like that. And I think, you know, that's like, that's fun. Sure. But I think it's about just like using the office for the things that it's good for, you know, and, and not, not making everybody get in there every day to put on their headphones and, you know, deal with whatever kind of commute that they're having. But like, you know, I think that this period of like enforced remoteness has caused me to reflect on like the things that like really clang when you're trying to do it over zoom. And like the mm -hmm. two things that I like most consistently come back to are unstructured collaboration where, mm -hmm. you know, it's the micro cues. It's like hearing the person catch a breath and you know that they're about to speak. It's like all those little ways that like, you know, the human animal is socialized to live in packs and can kind of like work together um, I think that, you know, whether it's micro lag and the, in, or latency in the feed or just like not, not being able to have the fidelity to kind of pick up on some of these little cues, like that sort of unstructured collaboration and conversation just really suffers. And I think, you know, I'm not, I'm not, this is not news mm -hmm. to anybody, but also I think persuasion, I think persuasion is like one of these things where whether you're trying to close a deal or get somebody to see something your way. There's something about the human, again, and I think this just comes down to the fact that like, you know, we're, we're not that far evolutionarily speaking from just being like straight up animals. 
And the thing of like having another animal in your space, there's like a danger component. There's a seriousness. There's somewhere it's like, this is a person that is like near enough to me that I need to actually pay attention and take them seriously because like, you know, we're all on the survival spectrum, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think that what that translates into when you're talking about work stuff is just like an immediacy and an ability to like persuade and like, and, and sort of impress upon somebody your presence as a factor in a conversation. Uh, layering in on something you said about 30 seconds ago, and, and given that the show is called Oh Ship, I feel compelled to acknowledge an Oh Ship moment I had about a year and a half ago where a uh, client and I were talking and they had said something that was funny and I was laughing about that, but then they changed the subject to something that was serious right afterwards, a family thing. And mm. due to a video lag, my laughing came out right at the serious <laughs> part. Uh, something that had happened to his one of his kids. Oh, and no. it was like, and then it was like I had to then unexplain that it was actually a video lag as this guy was like <laughs> I might rank it as one of the top 10 most awkward moments of my life actually oh, it, was, it was bad so yeah three cheers for video lag on that one so yeah, yeah. but I know, I know exactly uh exactly what you're talking about but you know g- going back uh to this kind of sense of the, this this tribalness i think that we all have when when people do get together uh i think that you know, there, there needs to be you know, a real, a real meaning for them to do it. You know, I'm in a place where like, I'm, I'm happy to, to you know, travel and get together with, for meetings, but I feel like there, there's like an, it's like almost like an ROI calculation. Sure. Like, like, you know, if for, for a client meeting or gathering, let's not even make it about clients, just people you need to collaborate with. Yeah. How many hours of travel is it for you personally before you're like, yeah, it's not worth it? Is it over five, over three? Yeah. You know what I mean? I guess like I guess I'd kind of turn that question back around on you, Freddie, and ask what why a meeting is important. Because mm-hmm. the like I think that there's such a there's such a modern reflexiveness around making something into a meeting that kind of comes from like there being this widespread notion of like consensus being being kind of the way that you move forward in like a modern and like mm-hmm. you know kind of startup environment or call it what you want but you know i think that there are like if you really push on it like you know if it, if the meeting is with a client and it's to seal a deal then yeah that's absolutely a meeting and like and like and i think i think if it's worth having it's worth having in person okay. if it's like a critical brainstorm to set strategy then that's a meeting and it's worth having in person. But so many things that are meetings are actually like a failure to delegate and trust and, mm. and, and a failure of leadership to choose metrics and stick to those mm. things. And so to basically say, hey, you know what? Like you're the, you're the head of product. Here's what the organization needs out of this, out of what we're talking about. Here's the enterprise mm. demands. It's a product thing. So you choose. And then we're going to look at these numbers to see if you were right. And it's like, okay, that like that could have been a bunch of weeklies, or mm-hmm. now it can be somebody who who's been given their kind of like runway to make a choice and you know be be the accountable person. Mm-hmm. You, you you mentioned uh, accountability and trust there, and I think those are things that when you're having digital meetings, uh, with video, or whatever phone calls, when the trust is there, everything else is easy. Is it weird that when and that when I think about traveling now that that actually I think the most viable reason I'd be traveling isn't actually for the meetings, 
but it's to have meals with people. It's actually the lunches and dinners that's the most valuable reason. Because that's the moment where I feel like I build more connections with people not talking about work. So that when we do talk about work over this, the the trust is is there more. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I mean, I'm flying to Stockholm in about a week and a half for exactly this reason. Because the fact of the matter is that like people trust people. People don't trust proposals or decks Mm -hmm. or strategies, you know? And so like, and that's the thing where people who have been in the office and have now gone remote have a real uh, advantage over people who met one another remotely, where they don't have that thing of like, I've been around this person, I've had a beer with them, they're real, I understand kind of where they're coming from. And I'm reassured that like, this is just another person and like, and like they're, and I can like touch and they're, and they're tangible. One one of the things you 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 talk, we talked about once uh, is is you talked about this concept uh, that I thought was really brilliant about like intentionality, like this concept that when you do get together, there's this this focus on uh, int- intentional work uh, and being present. Can can you talk to me a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that it it, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about before, where it's like, what's an office for? Like what, what, what does it do? Well, what did is, what does it not do well? And, you know, and, and kind of picking the right tool for the job. You know, I had this conversation with, uh, with another, like a fellow entrepreneur who is like freaking out about a lease he just signed and how expensive it was. And, you know, and meanwhile, he's got the headphones and Slack and like laptops and meetings thing happening as well. And one of the things we were talking about is like, you know, could you do a thing where two companies share one office they get exclusive use of the office one day a week. And then the rest of the week, anybody can come in and it's basically like a co-working space. But mm-hmm. for that one day a week, you get in there, no computers, everybody's using a pad and pencil, you're mm-hmm. in meetings, you cluster cool. all, yeah, yeah, you like cluster all the off-site-y kind of stuff, all the collaborative kind of stuff. And you're just like, for this one day a week, like we're in here and we're using the fact that we're IRL to basically generate a lot of alignment, a lot of consensus, a lot of new ideas. And then the rest of the week, if you want to get out of your apartment, great. You got a desk. If you want to work at home and not have to worry about headphones and have like your music on or you're quiet or be, you know, staring out your nice window. Great. You do that. You, you do you, you choose how to kind of get it done uh, the rest of the week, but that you're very, very deliberate about there being one day a week where everybody's there focused on the fact that you're among one another. A lot, a lot of what you just talked about, I see, is like the it's like the culture of work, right? So this is isn't these are the this isn't about processes or systems or even where you show up. I think it's about the the culture of the work environment that you you know live and operate and, and work in. When when you think about where things have been trending as you know the, the work over the last last couple of years in particular. You know, what are your what are your other thoughts? What's I guess what's what's better, what's worse in terms of some of the trends you're seeing in culture of work? Yeah, look, I mean, I think that it's a really, really good question right now because you know, if you think about like trend lines, it's like, you know, a bunch mm-hmm. of like dots plotted on a point and you're like, okay, here's where things are going. The last two years have been such a disruption where things have spiked and like gone all over the place because like we're trying to figure out what's happening. It's a moving target. Can we go back to the office? Oh no, there's a variant. And so I think that it's a really open question as to like when things stop, stop being quite as volatile, where that kind of trend line picks up, you know, whereas like if you zoom out a decade, two years of COVID weirdness, 
will still be something that gets factored into an overall trend line. And so I think, you know, I think that you're definitely going to see the trends of like remote work being a thing. I think the, I guess it's a long way of saying I'm not quite sure, but I think mm-hmm. that the, the thing that we can say for sure is that, as you say, you know, work culture is something that very few places have figured out how to translate mm-hmm. into an all remote, all digital modality. It's interesting. I, I, I hadn't, this is, I have never really thought about this before. So it's a little bit of a, uh, an unfinished idea, but it's a good conversation. I think when, when I think about uh, you're going back to this concept of trust that we talked about a minute, a minute ago. So you could argue there's different types of trust in the work environment. There is, you know, trust where uh, it's, it's professional trust. So, I, you know, we can work remotely together and we've had dozens or potentially hundreds of interactions and those interactions go, I like this person, I trust them professionally. It is a certain level of trust then. You then have another level of trust that I think uh, is, is born out of intimate moments or personal, I don't mean intimate in any kind of weird way, but just more personal, you know, outside, gently correcting spaces. Yeah. Massaging people. No, none of that stuff. <laughs> uh, but I mean, but I mean like being on a, being out of work, you know, some of those things, yeah, you can look, I've had, you know, time, you know, plenty of social times where I'm meeting with people remotely, but, but I also think there's something about the trust that's built by, you know, having a big night out with someone or having an totally. evening where you spend three or four hours talking over a glass of wine and really, really getting to know them. And so I feel like sometimes this, this, uh, th- these trusts impacts the way that we work with each other. And it also for, for all the leaders out there, it certainly impacts the way that you, you lead people. And, mm-hmm. and one of the areas that I think that this gets really heavily impacted by is, is feedback. Because feedback is all about trust. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when, a, when a, um, a coworker or a team member or employee or whatever you want to call it, you know, takes feedback from you, that feedback is always better received when they trust you. Does that make sense? Because they totally. know it's coming from a good, a good place. And so this is one of the areas I feel like it starts to struggle a bit more because sometimes the, the, the video, while it's perfectly good at, at communicating and getting the job done, maybe sometimes isn't as good at building some of the trust and the intimacy that is, is, makes great fabric in a business. I couldn't agree more. You know, I, I actually like hearing you kind of talk about the two kinds of trust. I, I, com- I completely agree. I, I would, I would almost sort of suggest like a semantic shift a little bit because, you know, the first kind of trust I completely agree with. And I think professionally that comes out of, you know, basically allowing yourself to be vulnerable and that like you're relying on this person and then they mm-hmm. follow through and that's trust. You know, it's cause like you were, you were vulnerable. They didn't let you down. That's building trust the big night out is like it's affection and again not to be weird like that like but it's it's affection for the person yeah, because yeah, like yeah, they're yeah. they're a human being not just yeah. a resource yeah exactly people you take your guard down and and mm-hmm. it's, it's, you know, when i talk about intimacy obviously i mean that you know it's, it's yep. going behind the veil you know and i think that that can help yeah and i and i, I think that you know, when you are giving feedback like feedback is inherently risky right it's like if it's actually worth saying it's going to be something that is delicate because it's, it's, if it has some kind of value, it is you telling a person like how you feel, 
It's about them. It's about you. There, it's got high stakes. Let's just say mm-hmm. if it's if it's any kind of real feedback. And so, if you have a foundation of that kind of trust and intimacy, or trust and affection, how whatever you want to kind of characterize it as, mm-hmm. like that, that's the thing where you know if I'm hearing you tell me something, Freddie, that's like a little hard to hear, and you, maybe you characterize it in a way where like I get like a like I get like a response. Mm-hmm. It's it's that foundation of trust and intimacy that helps me be like, okay, no, no, like that may have like landed a little weird on my ears, but this is Freddie. Like we yeah, have yeah, a thing. Exactly right. I, and, and like, you just keep rolling, you know, like that kind of is like the shock absorbers of the conversation. Whereas if you don't have that, you, you've got to have like perfect delivery of the feedback. If you want to be able to get through the thing and have the person on the other end feel like it was constructive and feel like you, you know, weren't coming after them personally or any of the different kinds of like pitfalls you can kind of mm-hmm. run into when someone's got something kind of sensitive to say. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's funny that, that again, I haven't really thought about this before, but when, when you know, people talk a lot about when we engage with each other in video, just like we're doing right now, how it is quite intimate and and you know you get exposure into people's lives and people's kids run by and their mom's there sat your know, dogs run in the room whatever it is right you're you're in, you're in their life you're in their living room but at the same time it also is controlled windows and so i feel like when you think about uh let's use a leader as an example which is a common theme here on our ship you know your impressions of a leader may not be even made up from your interactions with them, especially let's call it an open floor plan office. It might be how you passively consume all their interactions with other people. And those things also impact people's you know, trust of you. So they're, they're, they're really big, meaningful issues. I think that, that you know, people need to be really conscious of now. And so much of what it, you know, is, is leading and, and culture isn't what's said. It's mm-hmm. all the things that are unsaid. And all yep. those little interactions that that add up together. Yeah, that's that's a really great point. And like, and and I think that you're hitting on one of the major challenges of of remote work is that you end up in an office gathering all this kind of bycatch information. Mm-hmm. It's nothing that you would slack to somebody or pick mm-hmm. up the phone or write an email about, but you see the way that the person is talking to somebody else. And you overhear what's going on in their conversation, or you catch wind of a project that you're not part of, but it helps keep you aware of what's happening across the company. And like that kind of loss of the bycatch really robs you of a lot of broader context. You know, and some of that context is like, you know, what's this person like? Or can I trust this person? Or is this guy a good guy? Because like maybe they're being nice to me, but I'm their boss. And maybe they're being really awful to the people who have to answer to them. I'm going to put you on the spot. I have an opinion. We'll see where yours nets out compared to mine. But if you took the last last couple of years, and uh, obviously the you know all the things that's happened across the whole spectrum of things, uh, was it a, go- a good thing for the culture of work, or has it been a bad thing for the culture of work? I mean, I think it's been a bad thing for the culture of work. Just it's been a bad thing for people, you know. And because like that's that's like the I don't know. Like I, I'm kind of this is another kind of half formed idea, but like I I worry a little bit talking about work, like is work broken, you know, like work is a process, you know? And so it's like, is like your job is your like professional identity, actually what we're talking about here, or is it the productive time that you go that like that you're an employee and like, you know, that's more than just work, you know, it's a lot about 
you know, the, the kind of like identity that you're given. And I don't know, like, I I think, I think maybe I need to think about this a little bit more, but you know, thinking about the last couple, you you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, no, it's fair. I, I would, I would argue that it, while being a little rough, for the two years, I actually think on some level it was the best thing that ever happened to work, but only because it, and this is my disruptive entrepreneur brain here, only because it blew up everything. Yeah. And then, and then, and sure, we, maybe we messed up a lot and we've had some rough patches over the last couple of years, obviously, and, and it's been painful and, 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 but it's massive periods of disruption. And so when I think it's happening that while the last two years have been rough, I think the next two years could become, you know, some of the, the golden age of modern work, let's call it, because it took anyone that was just refusing to change or, or evolve. And maybe they're not going to be, you know, the bleeding edge of, of you know, modern work, which isn't for everyone, by the way. Sure. But I think it's going to take even the most stayed and uh, or, orgs uh, that, you know, were not evolving and saying, hey, we're going we're gonna to move them. We're going to move them forward. So you've got some great uh, uh, questions. We're going to pop up uh, from the audience. It's been great to see a, um, uh, you know, a good, uh, a good engaged audience. Again, thank you for all the people uh, watching, uh, watching live today. Uh, so Alain Laura's, I can see, is tuning in today. Uh, Charlie Hugh Jones, thank you again. Uh, but again, uh, <laughs> I love this. This work is a process. Love this conception, not identity, and that's very helpful. So again, thanks to everyone that's uh, tuning in and, and commenting in real time. If anyone who's uh, watching the show live now has any specific questions for Adam and I, uh, feel free to pop them in the chat and we'll, and we'll do our best uh, to respond to them, yeah. you know, assuming they're not totally insane. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, no I, think, I think you're touching on something really interesting, Freddie, and that's kind of like what that, that was kind of what I was mentioning before, where it's like, like, let's say that things go back to normal, which like, I think that that like feels more and more illusory every day. But like, yeah. you know, does it will people be broken of like the meeting culture? And like, will it be the kind of thing where people where like em- employees are trusted to s- execute their job and be like measured on whether it worked or not? You know, like, mm-hmm. that's, that's going to be really interesting, because it's, you know, the meeting culture enables bad leadership and mm-hmm. you know we don't really like most places don't really invest in people being leaders you know mm-hmm. like like how many people get promoted and are just like okay here's your new title here are your people like good luck here's what we good do luck. for you <laughs> you know and it's like that's like that's terrible you know yeah. and, and and i'm i've been guilty of this as well like at thrillist i was very, very proud of, of doing a lot of internal promoting i mean that was the way that we kind of built our ranks but I definitely could have done a much better job, like sitting down with people that are becoming new managers or taking on a team of a different scale and like being like, Hey, here's how to think about this. And here's how to structure it. And here's when to bear down and here's where to, you know, step back. And, you know, I think for me, it was something that was one of the greatest pleasures of being an entrepreneur and building teams and stuff like that is that I really loved the thing of finding people and investing in them and giving them a challenge and letting them do it and helping them kind of work through it. Like that was, that was like, I think probably one of my greatest pleasures in, in having built Phyllis. But, you know, I think that's the kind of thing that we have to kind of imagine is a cultivated skill and something that like people don't just wake up one day knowing how to navigate. So uh, I couldn't agree more. And let's address some of the new questions that come in. And two questions pop in. 
Uh, first one is uh, from Adam Tovum, uh, and he asks, uh, what are the best parts of remote work slash remote leadership, and what, we, what should we alter or obtain as we slide back into more in-person working? Yeah, yeah, listen, I mean, I think about that. So let me zoom back to 2006. No, no so we were, <laughs> yeah, exactly. No <laughs> zoom then. So that was, that was definitely uh, an, uh, a thing of the future. But when Thrillist launched our LA uh, edition, our LA newsletter, I had an employee for the first time who was out in LA. Uh, you know, until then, it had been me and my people around a table in a shared workplace. And I had my guy in LA and all of a sudden I was like, oh, I'm managing this guy. You know, he was an employee, but he was fully remote. I didn't know him personally. I didn't have a a relationship yet. And I really quickly was like, all right, what do I need out of this role? And let's be super specific. You know, what is the deliverable? When do I need it by? What makes it good? And I had to just like really all of a sudden take a step back and be so much more intentional as a leader. And basically what I came to realize is like my guy in LA was awesome. He worked for us for over 10 years. Uh, he's like a personal friend of mine. But in that first moment where I couldn't know what was going on with him, he was not in office. I didn't know whether he was coming in late. You know, I like had to be like, I care about getting this. And I can't care about the rest of that stuff. It's frankly not even my business. Mm-hmm. And that was a thing that you know that that was a really challenging lesson as a you know twenty six year old new leader uh, mm-hmm. for me to learn. But it was so critical to my go forward as a manager. And it was mm-hmm. something that I took to you know people that were there in person. And so that mm-hmm. idea. Of like what it's, it's, it's almost like disconnecting from the process a little bit and being focused on the results and yep. give people a lot of freedom to kind of get, get work done the way they, they're going to get it done. As long as they get it done is the key part, right? Totally, totally. And like, and because the thing is like, the process is frankly not your business. And it, mm-hmm. that's like a weird thing to tell somebody when they're employing somebody. Like if there are things about the process that you really object to, then yeah. you should be able to, if, then if they matter, you should be able to measure them in the outcome. And so like, mm-hmm. let's say that this is my guy in LA and he's got to get, he's got to cover all the new restaurant scoops. And part of me, part of me is like, well, I hope that he's operating in this way because I don't want people to feel like he was a jerk. And so mm-hmm. I can't be there part of his process, but I can know when we follow up with the restaurants that we covered, that their anecdotal report of the experience mm-hmm. has to be good. And that's an outcome, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And so that idea of, as a manager, being really, really deliberate about outcomes of remote employees where you can't look at process is actually the kind of thing that the discipline of having remote resources like that mm-hmm. is we should all we should all have that experience and that should that shouldn't go away if it's a thing you've learned how to go into it goes, it goes back to that trust stuff that we talked about earlier as well uh, I'm gonna pop up another another question from the audience and I think I'm gonna take this one on uh, personally so this is from Aline Lores it says uh, what do you recommend to build solid relationships with your freelancers that you don't know personally uh, who, are, who are remote? This is a great question. And so one of the things that uh, we touched on earlier was this building of relationships. And so one of the things I think can happen when in, in pure remote relationships is that things can become very transactional. Uh, so it's like, you know, uh, part of me, because I'm a really, really unfortunately probably too busy guy 
Uh, remote work has allowed me to crank out even more work because I'm not traveling in between meetings anymore. Um, and so I, and I'm just packing meetings now. I don't do meetings over 30 minutes typically. So I can pack in 16 meetings a day and sometimes more which is, is a little crazy, I recognize on a side note, uh, but, but it can become very transactional because you're just trying to knock things out after, you know, call after call after call, meeting after meeting after meeting. And so I think it's, this is the same rules apply as in real life. Stop, breathe, find the time, more importantly, make the time to get to know these people. So yeah, you know what? Maybe you won't go out and have a beer with them in person or whatever, you know, whatever your way of building relationships is with folks, coffees, whatever. But time is universal. And so, you know, I, I just speaking personally, like at, at Chameleon Collective, I've probably spoken to almost every single person that's ever engaged with Chameleon Collective, even if it was just once for half an hour, because, you know, I, I want to be a good steward and representative of the company's culture. I want them to see uh, me as an extension of that culture. I want to make sure that they're aligned with that that culture. But I also recognize that part of our culture is that we're more than a, more than a company that we know each other and that there's a lot of a sense of, of friendship inside the group. Um, again, every company's culture is different, but in our case, um, you know that's something I, I I try and do, and I think that can apply to everyone. So I think my I guess my simple point is don't think of remote any different than real life. It's all about making time for people and you just have to do it. And, and, and no matter how busy you are, you have to find value in those, I'm just getting to know you meetings as much as the, we're doing something that transacts money or value between us meetings. <laughs> so really good. Um, and then uh, I think uh, jumping one last question uh, from the audience. Uh, so this one is from uh, Charlie Hugh Jones. He says, uh, going back to a subject of kind of going back to normal, he goes, back to normal feels more illusory every day. I uh, wonder whether you think, uh, quote unquote, uh, normal is a default heuristic of not having to cultivate, create, design our work experience. Any thoughts on, the, on that, Adam? Yeah, look, I mean, normal, normal is a strange concept. I think about normal as like the baseline situational reality being consistent enough that you can come up with like a foundation for how you make decisions. And so normal, you know, normal could be wearing face masks, but like, you know, around here they're like the mask mandate is being lifted. You know, I, I think that the, that the reason that the last couple of years have been so abnormal is just the speed at which there has been universal change around really basic aspects of life. And so, you know, I, I, I definitely don't think that normal means that we all get to like stop being thoughtful. Um, mm. But I think that it means that we can kind of not be off balance, like every time that you open the paper or, uh, or, you know, talk to a friend. So, you know, I, I definitely appreciate that things being consistent doesn't mean that they become stale. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny. I, I, I hadn't really thought about it through the, the lens that, that they put out there. I sometimes wonder, like, I guess what did define normal? Obviously, there's accumulated uh, experiences of all these different workforces that are out there and everyone kind of follows a, a comparable model. But I think there's another part of it. It's like, and this is going to sound weird, but like, it's almost like what TV shows and movies regurgitate back to us, what work is supposed to feel like and look like. Cause that's, you know, it's like you're seeing, you're seeing these kind of imaginary versions of what other people's jobs are. And then you're like, Oh, I guess that's what normal looks like. 
And I think, you know, to Charlie's point now, maybe, maybe the, the new normal is, is uh, it's a little bit more of a boutique experience in the sense that you do have a, you know, a greater degree of control over it. I would argue when I said earlier that, that I, I felt like while extraordinarily disruptive, that maybe the last two years weren't the greatest uh, for a lot of people, but I think it may, you know, usher in, you know, kind of a, a new era. Um, a lot of the things that other people have been adopting lately, you know, it seems like Adam and I have been practicing on, on various levels for the last you know, 15 plus years, or in our case, you know, 16, six years or so. And I think, you know, this, this kind of, you know, creating, creating work environments that feel more personalized to the people and, and embracing technologies and so on that allow us all to connect together. But more importantly, it seems like there's this really high degree of empathy uh, of saying, hey, I, I, I respect what you want to do in your personal life, and I'm going to help you build your job a little bit more around your life than making you build your life around your job. And that's maybe like an unsaid theme that's starting to happen more and more and more. I think that's what's happening. You know, the great resignation, I think a lot of that is 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 driven by people going, yeah, I, I kind of liked parts of the last couple of years because I got to do this, this and this. And now I'm going to find a job that lets me do that. If my job doesn't want to let me do it, well, my job can stuff it then. <laughs> you know, and I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go make it happen. And no, and, I think uh, I think that that's I think that's a really great point. And to the extent that like we're talking about work being a process, and a person's process is their business. Your employment yeah. is about your impact and about your results. And so I think if like what can come out of this is that employers more and more get comfortable with the idea that they're buying results, and that a person's process is the thing that happens you know, when they move to Boise or when they're in the office or when they're not, and is subsequently not really the employer's business because they're getting the impact, they're getting the result that they're buying. I think that that is a major step toward one's lifestyle becoming more human and being more based around one's own individuality. Yeah, you're here. I think that is an awesome place to to jump off for this week. I feel like we could easily have a part two to this episode. I had a whole bunch of other things I, I was, uh, wanted to get into today, but I, I enjoyed the chat so much. I didn't want to disrupt or, or distract us. And thank you again for finding some time to chat with us. I really, really enjoyed it. It was uh, super fun, as expected. What's the best way for people to uh, you know, stay follow up on you or, or stay connected to you if they want to learn more about you? Yeah, please just find me on LinkedIn. Reach out, send me a message. I'd love to talk to you. You know, as Freddie said, uh, you know, I, I my background is in content and audience growth and all those kinds of media things for people in and out of media. And uh, I'm a consultant myself. I'd be happy to help you out uh, or just chat with you. I'm, I'm nerdy for all this stuff. I, I love every part of business building and entrepreneurship and all that stuff. So I'm always happy to get to meet somebody who uh, is nerdy along with me. Yeah. On a side note, you know, Adam Adam is a perfect example of someone who I got to meet over the last couple of years. You know, I have never had the pleasure of meeting in person. I know we genuinely like each other and are di- looking forward to that first, uh, you know, dinner or drinks or whatever one day. But it's again, this is a great example of like why when you find people that are really interesting, uh, even if we don't get to see them in person, find the time to to get to know them. Um, and um, and if if we hadn't have done that, then he wouldn't be here on those ship today. So again, thank thank you thank you again, Adam, to all the people uh, watching. Uh, as you know, thank you again for tuning in. Whether you're watching our live stream on any of the different uh, platforms we stream on, or you're watching them afterwards on Facebook or YouTube or Twitter uh, or LinkedIn. 
Again, thank you for your time. If you're listening on the audio podcast on any of the major podcasting platforms, thank you for listening in. And uh, we look forward to seeing you on a future week of O'Ship. The O'Ship Show is brought to you by Chameleon Collective, where we lead, scale, and adapt to build and grow great companies. You can learn more at chameleoncollective.com. Freddie will see you next time when we will once again be raising the sales for the O Ship Show.